Okay, so this is podcast number one, which is a review for 6382, the first quiz. Um, so I will be reviewing several of the concepts that are going to be covered on the quiz, but I want you to know that the expectation is you're still going to provide your own independent interpretation of the concepts and that you're going to provide your own examples of the concepts so you can demonstrate your knowledge and ability to apply the concepts. So the first concept we're going to cover is macro versus micro practice. So micro practice um, definitely means practice at the levels of individuals, couples, and families. Some people consider groups to be micro practice. Some people consider groups to be macro practice. I personally consider groups to be micro practice also um, because the purpose is usually a, a clinical intention with groups. Um, so you know, the idea with social work is that instead of localizing problems within the microsystem, meaning that, you know, every problem that occurs is due to people's functioning, we recognize that problems occur at the level of organizations and communities, and that the ways that organizations and communities function affect the microsystem. So an example is if you consider housing precariousness. So someone could lose their housing because they are ill and they can't work, or they're depressed and they can't work, and so they have inadequate income to be able to pay for the housing. However, so that's a kind of a micro-level approach. On the other hand, if people have been evicted in the past, the eviction is uh, functions as a criminal record that's discoverable by landlords um, doing background checks, and this affects people's ability to rent um, if they've had an eviction in the past. So a lot of people don't know that they can fight eviction proceedings and ha avoid having a legal charge against them upheld. So if they knew that and they had the resources to, to fight the eviction, they might not have that on their record and they wouldn't have the same difficulty finding housing in the future. So the depression or illness is a micro, uh, operates at the micro level, but the um, system that creates a legal record um, after an eviction is a, a macro function. And so at social work, we recognize the ability to change the macro environment can affect people at the micro environment positively. So we also want to look at um, the major arenas of intervention in macro practice. So macro practice um, affects work in organizations, in communities, and in the policy arena. So um, organizational work doesn't mean I work within an organization. doesn't mean I connect with organizations. It means I change organizations. So this means I assess, um, I engage with organizations, I assess them, I intervene, and I evaluate within organizations. So an example of organizational macro practice might be, if you've ever heard of PADS, that's a, um, a system for providing short-term housing in kind of rotating locations for people experiencing homelessness. So we provide overnight accommodations for them. What often happens is that men are segregated into one location and women and children are segregated into another location. So this can create dif um, difficult circumstances on a variety of different levels. And one instance is people who are transgender. So if the person is transgender and they are not housed um, with a person with people who are consistent with their gender identity, that creates conflict for them. And an organizational intervention would be to work with PADS to create an internal policy that allows people to self-identify with regard to gender and to be allowed to have accommodations aligned with self-identified gender. That would be an organizational level intervention. 
um, a community level intervention is again not meant to be a recognition that we operate within communities but is actually meant to be an attempt to change communities so we engage with communities we assess them we intervene within communities and we evaluate work within our communities so an example is in last year's voting cycle grassroots organizations held campaigns to establish 708 boards or also called mental health boards for Schaumburg and for some other townships. So these boards um, collect and utilize a very small percentage of local property tax, which is less than 1% of property tax, to provide funding for local mental health services. And the utilization of the funds for the services is um, determined by a local board of representatives. Um, and to create these boards took um, a vote. They had to create a levy and they had to have a vote on the establishment of the boards, and that is a community-level intervention. Policy practice um, means that we're changing policy really at any level. Could be local, could be organizational, could be state, could be federal, and this is um, out of recognition that the policy is integral to what happens in communities and organizations and the lives of clients. So an example there is um, a policy that was created that made children, um, families who are receiving SNAP, which is Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or food stamps, be eligible automatically for free or reduced fee school meals. Um, because previously they would have to go through two rounds of income qualification, first for the SNAP and second for the school meals. Um, and this policy allowed them to only have to do that once, so it's less stigmatizing for those families and um, also increases the likelihood the kids are going to get that eligibility for those meals. So that's an example of a policy level intervention. Okay, so how did social work even get here in the first place? There have been um, many, many changes, you know, over the course of the past, um, you know, 230 years, and that have had an impact on the way in which um, social problems are addressed in America. So the first one of these major changes was policy growth and immigration. Um, and from 1790 to 2010, the population expanded from 4 million to 309 million, so explosive population growth, a lot of which has been driven uh, by immigration, which has grown the population, has increased its diversity. A second factor is industrialization and urbanization. So the ability to produce large quantities of commercial goods efficiently created a circumstance where there's both work available for people who needed work to be employed and also products available for purchase. And both of these have contributed to the population growth because they've drawn immigration and have increased concentration of people in urban centers because that is where the industrialization was taking place. Um, so those created very dynamic shifts in who was here and where they were. Um, and with people populations rising and concentration of people in urban centers, ability to solve social problems using existing structures like families and churches and schools diminished. Also, you know, work became very um, considerably more complex. So it used to be the case that we had a pretty agricultural economy and people were very self-sufficient and would um, you know, do everything they needed to do for themselves. So kind of think Little House on the Prairie. But right now, everybody's work depends on everybody else's work. And work has become very, very kind of specialized. So people have unique sets of skills. And this creates dependence 
um, within organizations and across communities to be able to fulfill purposes. Um, so alongside that came the emergence of a welfare system. So it used to be the case that local systems managed social problems. Sometimes they used minimal taxation and systems of services. Um, but with rising population and increasingly complex needs, the ability of localities to address all of their needs independently faded. Um, and we started to develop larger organizations of services to orphan and orphaned children, people with mental illness, people with intellectual disabilities. Um, however, these services are all decentralized, fragmented, and lacking in oversight, um, which has led to the emergence of state and federal policy and programs to try to address um, shortfalls. So those are all for um, changes that have related to the development of social work, like all of the shifts that we've experienced in America have led to the needs for social work and have led to the systems that we have right now for social work. Um, yet, our existing social service systems are often viewed as decentralized and fragmented, and it's very difficult to create a system of coordinated care, um, some, something we need to work toward in social work. Okay, um, shifting to a different chapter, we're going to talk a little bit about cultural competence and cultural humility. So the idea of cultural competence um, sort of emerged in recognition that social workers need to be well prepared to function with a wide variety of different types of communities and wide variety of different types of identities and people with very diverse experiences. So cultural competence basically includes interrelated actions, thoughts, and policies within an organization or system that facilitate um, effective cross-cultural social work. So in your book, Table 3.1, there's a demonstration of the idea of cultural competence as a continuum. However, um, the idea of cultural competence itself has been questioned, in part because it sort of embodies the idea that social workers can somehow obtain specialized knowledge about client groups, and that de-emphasizes the importance of learning from clients, which is a value that we have. In addition, the idea of cultural competence risks an approach that stereotypes clients. So it gives us this idea that there's knowledge out there about a client group that we can just find and apply and everything's going to be fine. But we have to recognize that within all cultural groups, people have very unique and individual identities and we don't want to lose sight of that. And then another factor is that people have multiple cultural identities. So, you know, I have friends who are um, Jewish and deaf and lesbian all, and each one of these is a source of both strength and sometimes stigma, and the way in which they intersect with one another creates a very unique identity and a very unique experience of, of kind of life in America. And the, the idea of cultural competence sort of glosses over that. So, you know, given, and also it's very, it's ambiguous in terms of its definition. We've not been very successful at measuring cultural competence. So our focus has shifted to cultural humility. Um, and that means we have a continual commitment to learning and self-reflection and to altering power imbalances, um, primarily power imbalances between helping professionals and consumers um, in order to create equitable and collaborative relationships among community members. So table 3.2 in your book has some critical questions concerning cultural humility. All right, continuing to shift in discussing problems versus conditions. So a condition um, is present in a community and that condition might be troublesome to some people but may not have been identified, labeled, publicly acknowledged. 
Um, and sometimes that's because the condition isn't affecting very many people or it's not affecting them very severely. It's not costly and so forth. Um, in other instances, people just don't recognize that the condition is there. So an example, a um, very recent one, is that school board elections in many districts just occurred. So in the past, school board elections usually have not drawn out a strong vote. But now school boards are kind of increasingly in the spotlight. And part of that is because during the pandemic, um, there was a lot of focus on mask mandates and holding school boards accountable for decisions made around mask mandates. Um, and more and more so, school boards are held accountable for concerns related to how children learn and what topics they learn concerning race, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, and other aspects of identity. And schools are one of the few social institutions that the local population actually has some control over. So the population gets to make choices. And so these arenas of decision-making have become under increasing focus. So things that might not have been considered a problem in the past, like the kind of books in a school's library, might now be considered to be a problem by some people. And the election results are an indicator of the extent to which the local communities agree or disagree um, on whether or not these conditions are problems. So, you know, whether or not a condition arises to the level of a problem has to do with whether or not people recognize and acknowledge that this is a problem and they want to do something about it. So that's a pretty simple definition. All right, the next piece to cover is five functions of community. Um, and it says locality-relevant communities um, in, in my notes. And locality-relevant community means a geographic community. So we definitely have multiple definitions of community. And, and part of that can be a community of identity, um, like my husband and son are deaf, so we're part of the deaf community, but that's not a locality. So a locality might be something like Schaumburg, Illinois. So the five functions of community relate to, like, geography. So one of the functions is production, distribution, and consumption. So this really just relates to communities' abilities to meet people's material needs, like food and clothing and shelter. So people depend on one another for these and many other needs in a lot of ways that are often not very recognized. So if I had to grow food in my backyard and subsist only on what I could produce, I would be in big trouble. You know, I really depend on the ability to go to Jewel Osco or Aldi or Walmart and see that food is there and it's been grown and it's been cleaned and it's been packaged and it's been transported and it's been stocked. Like All of those things are done by other people. So those are community roles. Second role is socialization. So this means establishing norms, traditions, and values. And having a shared set of norms, traditions, and values drives development of people's attitudes, affects how they view themselves and other people, and what their rights and responsibilities are. Um, so for instance, in our community, there was a hit and run recently. And people took to the internet and started to discuss this, and they all you know, kind of cast aspersions on a person that would hit another person's vehicle and just drive away without stopping to leave information or try to solve the problem. And they started to share information, you know, any ring cams that they had. Um, and that's because the community has a shared value concerning following the law and being accountable for, you know, being any mistakes that you made. So the third function of community is social control. Um, so this is how compliance with norms and values is established. Usually it takes the form of laws, rules, and regulations and systems for enforcement. Um, for example, this week, um, Wisconsin elected a high court 
that is expected to rule regarding a system of gerrymandering that has been put in place in Wisconsin and is considered unconstitutional. So trying to, um, and you know, trying to determine the ways in which social control is valuable and important and the ways in which it leans in too much into independence is an ongoing discussion in America. And social work has a really legitimate part of that discussion. We've been called out for excessive social control, and we've also been called out for inadequate social control. So um, it's an important community function, and social workers helping communities to make these determinations and put these systems in place is important. Fourth function is social participation means interacting with people in, uh, in the community through groups, associations, and organizations. So this could be really formal or it could be very informal. So, you know, a formal um, example is like League of Women Voters. An informal example is like a book club. Fifth function is mutual support, and this means caring for people in need. Um, so the availability and ability of traditional community units, such as families, religious organizations, and so forth, to care for their members has become strained due to industrialization, urbanization, mobility, and all the things we already talked about. So an example is um, the PADS program that I was talking about. So I volunteered in the PADS program. This is a way that communities have to create a shelter option for people when they don't have the resources or the need for a full-on shelter, um, but it provides some shelter in rotating locations for people. Okay, next topic is to talk about um, three perspectives of community of power in communities and the relevance to assessing communities. So there are three, th three ideas concerning power. And they're kind of related and kind of not related. One is power dependency theory. So this idea is that there, this focuses on relationships and the idea is that dependence on others creates a power dynamic within each relationship. And the power, excuse me, power dynamic might be perceived rather than utilized, but it is always a motivator for people's behavior. So sometimes people feel compelled to conform and exchange relationships because the way that they conform might impact their access to resources. So um, units within communities might become beholden to one another. So for instance, um, I was recently engaging with a group of potential funders about a perceived need and the funders had one view of what the needs were and other people in the group had a different view of what the needs were. And the consequence was that people in the group ended up agreeing with the funders that the need that they perceived does exist and is a priority, even though people in the group also thought other needs were important. And the reason why is that the funders held some power there and they were trying to respond to the differentials in power um, and this relates to community decision-making, too, because people within communities recognize those differentials in power in the community, and it affects decision-making. So the second um, perspective of community power is um, conflict theory. So this emphasizes the idea that there's a limited pool of resources, and people have to compete for that limited pool of resources, and the people with access to the resources hold power over those who do not have access to the resources. Um, and this relates to the presence of oppression. So some views of this um, suggest that government control of resources um, is ensured by the actions of the wealthy and that the wealthy utilize this dynamic to ensure that they remain in control. 
Um, and some views suggest that this will inevitably lead to conflict. But the idea here is that analyzing who has wealth and resources is going to help you to understand who has power within the community and is going to help you be able to figure out how the community's functioning has evolved and is maintained. So the last um, theory concerning community power has to do with resource mobi mobilization. So this has um, arisen from examination of social movements. So in order to mobilize, people have to have a collective identity. Um, people who are not represented in decision-making may use public protests to bring attention to a social issue. And whether or not they're successful or the extent to which they're successful in these movements um, has to do with the strength of their collective identity um, and the quality of the message that they bring. So an example is protests that were sparked by the killing of George Floyd. So a lot of other protests have happened since that time. Um, and yet that original set of protests went on for longer than any other protest that has arisen since that time um, and is regarded as the spark for many subsequent protests. So understanding the extent to which a group of people has a collective identity um, and the way that collective identity can be built helps us to understand how to mobilize groups that can be an important and that examination of identity and potential for mobilization and message is an important part of community assessment. Okay, next one is talking about nonprofit, public, and for-profit organizations. So nonprofit organizations, people often misunderstand this because they think they can't earn a profit. And nonprofit organizations can earn a profit, but the profit is not owned or shared by owners of the organization. So they don't have shareholders who can kind of cash out their shares for profit. Nonprofit organizations are publicly owned, and if they're discontinued, any remaining funds have to be dispersed to other nonprofit organizations. They are tax exempt. So many human service organizations fall into the nonprofit sector. For-profit organizations also sometimes provide social services, um, but the fundamental purpose of these organizations is to earn a profit for shareholders. Um, so examples of human services domain um, organizations that fall into the for-profit sector are often hospitals, nursing care facilities, and sometimes residential treatment facilities. Public agencies are funded primarily by federal and state funding. So a lot of public funding also supports nonprofits. Um, so, for instance, when we charge Medicaid for clinical services, we're using public funds. Or if nonprofit agencies are given grants from local tax revenue, that is public funds supporting nonprofit agencies. However, um, there are very few organizations that are fully public. Um, so, examples of organizations that do social services that are fully public are like the VA and also government-run um, nursing homes. So they're entirely government money. So that's basically the differentiation between those three types of organizations. All right, next topic is etiology and intervention. So hypotheses of etiology and hypotheses of intervention. So etiology means cause, like what caused a problem. So the idea here is if you cannot identify the underlying cause of a problem, you are probably not going to be successful at intervening in that problem. So the book gives you an example of increases in gang violence in a community. So multiple factors are likely to drive that dynamic. 
Um, and the factors the community identifies might be different from the factors that social service professionals would identify. Um, so the most significant factors have to be identified and the perspective of the community should predominate. Um, the intervention hypothesis should be based on what you think the cause of the problem is or what was learned about etiology. So that means if, you, if you've identified the cause of something, the solution to that should arise kind of naturally from the examination of the cause. So the intervention hypothesis defines a relationship between the proposed interventions and the expected outcomes. So it identifies the target population, the problem, the proposed change, and the results expected. So here's an example. Um, if we examine increase in opioid deaths, um, one way to look at that is, oh, if more people are dying due to opioid use, people might assume that that is due to an increase in drug use. And if we assume that that was caused by increase in drug use, then we would potentially want to reduce drug use. So we might put programs in place to prevent drug use or treat drug use. However, if we understood that the increases in opioid deaths are not related to increase in drug use, but rather are increased are related to increases in fentanyl in drugs, then we might have a different view of this. And our idea about how to address this problem might be to provide fentanyl test strips to help people identify when there's fentanyl in the drugs. So, you know, the way that you identify the cause is directly going to inform the intervention that you recommend putting in place. And if you've identified the cause incorrectly, your intervention will not work. We also have to recognize in social services that problems are usually caused by multiple factors. And if we only intervene in one of those factors, we're not going to solve the whole problem. We're going to solve a piece of the problem. So those are the ideas connected to etiology and intervention. All right, next piece is about client systems and target systems. So client system is people who will be the direct or indirect beneficiaries of change. They might be the service user. They might not be the service user. So for instance, um, if we have treatment treatment resources like support groups for families of individuals with chronic and severe mental illness, this might help increase the capacity of the families to provide care. And this would benefit the families and the people with the mental illness. So in this case, um, the, the client system might actually be the families, right? But people who are indirectly affected by that would be the people with mental illness. So the target system is different. So a target population and a target system are different. So here we're talking about a target system. A target system is individual, group, um, a, a structure, a policy, or a practice that needs to be changed. So it's whatever entity we're trying to change. Could be a group of people, could be a policy. Um, target system could shift throughout the course of establishing an intervention. So for instance, if a group within a community wanted to incorporate a harm reduction philosophy into their responses to substance addiction within the community, they might want to provide clean materials used for injection. Um, and a lot of people in the community might not like that idea because they think that if you did that, you would increase the number of people with substance use disorders or how the extent of their substance use disorder. Um, and so they might not recognize that providing those materials isn't going to have any impact on the number of people with substance use disorders or the extent of substance use. The only impact it's going to have is on reduction of transmission of H HIV, hepatitis, and things like that. So before you can actually 
target the problem, um, you know, which is transmission of disease, your first target has to be working with the the community to try to help increase their knowledge and acceptance about harm reduction. So in that case, um, in order to make the change, you may have to change the community and then, you know, change the um, the problem that's being experienced um, with regard to not having clean supplies to pre prevent transmission of illness. So it's sort of a, a two-tiered problem there. So that's the difference between client systems um, and target systems. So client is definitely the people who you're intervening with, and target system is the um, individual group structure policy or practice that needs to be changed, and we recognize that the target system may shift over time. Okay, last concept we're going to talk today about is force field analysis, and you did cover this in one of your um, posts, so hopefully this is going to be familiar to you. So a force field analysis identifies the support for or opposition to change from individuals, groups, and organizations. So it identifies driving or supporting forces, neutral entities, and restraining or opposing forces. Um, and the extent to which each of the systems laid out in Chapter 9 align with the ideas of support, neutrality, or opposition is detailed in the analysis with specific groups identified and specific people identified. And it basically produces a graphic analysis that helps you understand resources of support and where those are and um, opposition and helps you think through how opposition might be addressed, how support might be leveraged, and in the end actually helps you identify whether or not a change is even possible. Because if you see that there's very, very little support and a lot of opposition, you may not be able to do anything about it right now. You know, you may not be able to address all of that opposition in a way that's timely. You may need to shift your focus. On the other hand, if you see that you have a lot of support and there's not very much opposition and the opposition is very localized, you may be able to leverage your support to address that opposition in a way that's going to smooth the road to being able to carry out the intervention. So being able to formalize your examination of those areas of support and those areas of opposition is going to give you ideas about how to proceed forward in making changes in your community. So that is all I have for you today. I hope that this is really helpful and let me know.